Jay Sigurd here, Starting Point Podcast. We're talking science, faith, and a whole lot more. Buckle up, because it's go time. Well, thanks for joining me on today's broadcast. We are starting a brand new series entitled The Genesis Flood. And you'll never guess what it's about. Yeah, the Genesis Flood. That's why I decided to entitle it The Genesis Flood. Brilliant, right? Well, before we get any further, please make sure you subscribe to these podcasts so you can be alerted when each new one comes out on Friday. And again, it helps us tremendously. If you can leave a five-star review, we reach more and more people. I think we're up to about almost 30 countries now, and it's all thanks to you getting the word out. So that's a big favor and a big help. Now, in the last series, I mentioned that most people could not give you the big picture of the Bible, even if you paid them a million dollars. Well, unfortunately, even many Christians who they might be fairly familiar with Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, uh, they still don't know the big picture of the Old Testament. They just know a few really cool stories, but they really don't know how all that fits together. And if you want to know more about that and you missed it, the previous series, we did the big picture, Old Testament in a nutshell, and the New Testament in a nutshell. Well, one of those stories that everyone knows from the Old Testament is the Genesis flood, right? Well, unfortunately, much of what many people think they know isn't even accurate. And it may just be what they got from someone else, who got it from someone else, who probably got it wrong to begin with. And if I was a skeptic, this would definitely be one of my favorite stories in the Bible to make fun of. It's one of the easiest ways to disprove the credibility of the Bible. And I could be very successful with that as long as I committed to avoiding one thing. Well, what's that, you ask? I would need to avoid studying and addressing what the Bible actually says about this event. As long as I stick with the popular and common mischaracterization of the account, you know, I should be good to go. So given all that, my best approach to this little mini-series is going to be to do two things. Number one, we'll take a look at what the Bible actually says about the flood, dispelling some myths and considering not only the biblical description of the flood, but also its significance as well. Second, we'll review the scientific data that confirms the literal and historical nature of the flood that provides further evidence of the reliability of the scriptures. So, at this point, I'm thinking it's probably going to be a couple podcasts. The first one will be covering the first of these two points. It's what the Bible actually says and its significance. The next podcast, maybe one or two, I'm not quite sure yet, will be covering scientific evidence for the Genesis flood. I just have to figure out how, how deep I want to go with these evidences. There's a lot out there, and I'm really excited about this series. So what can you expect in today's podcast? Well, I'm going to dispel some myths about the flood, discuss the biblical description of the flood, and talk about its significance in the big picture. I think you're going to find out this is a lot, lot more significant than you ever imagined. And it's really at this point about the reliability of Scripture. Can we really, really, truly trust it? Or do we need to go somewhere else for our ultimate authority for truth? That's what most of my podcasts come down to. Uh, 
Is the Bible really what it claims to be, the divinely inspired, inerrant Word of God cover to cover? Or does it just have some pretty good principles for a living and some moral you know, advice? But you know, for anything else, you got to go somewhere else because the Bible is just antiquated, outdated, disproven, and all that. You know, I'm coming from the standpoint you can trust everything it says cover to cover. So we need to address this issue of the flood because in a lot of people's minds, the flood is one of the biggest reasons why you can't take the Bible that seriously. It's just, you know, has some myths and fables and silly stories in it, even though it does have some pretty good advice in, in other sections. That's, that's how many people approach the Bible. So if we look at the flood here as the classical silly stories, uh, this is where we're headed. Um, and I mentioned before that I realize a large percentage of my audience consists of people who have already been following our ministry, which is the Starting Point Project. And again, the website is the startingpointproject.com. <laughs> I don't spend a lot of time promoting our ministry or talking about our website. I probably need to do that a little bit more. So large portion of my audience, people have already been following our ministry. Uh, others have been recently introduced to us, but they were already interested in learning how to defend the Christian worldview. Others, however, might be a bit skeptical, some even extremely skeptical. Those are the ones that I get really excited about. I am so honored that a skeptic would devote any time whatsoever to hearing anything that I have to say. So if you are in that camp, thank you, thank you, thank you. Seriously, it's awesome that you are listening. But given that background, I want to move ahead, continuing to be very logical about everything I cover. I mentioned that in our intro podcast a number of months ago. Uh, and being logical, if it turns out that this whole flood story is like completely crazy with no logical or scientific verification, I think a skeptic would be fairly well justified in questioning everything else in the Bible. It would not mean that everything else is automatically wrong, just that there's a rational basis for them being very skeptical about all of it. At the same time, if we're going to be logical, if the allegedly silly creation account or the supposedly whimsical story of the flood that's keeping the skeptic from uh, taking seriously the rest of the Bible, if it turns out that the creation account and the flood narratives are actually very credible and have lots of evidence, that should mean that the skeptic should be open to hearing more about what the Bible has to say, especially about Jesus. So let's not waste any time trying to defend misconceptions of the flood. Let's take a look at what we actually read in Scripture and check that out. So talking about these misconceptions, you'll hear things like this, and you can picture in your mind this little boat with giraffe heads sticking out of the windows, right? You, you picture that, especially when skeptics are talking about it. Even, even in some churches I see in where the, they're watching their kids, on you have murals on the wall of these little boats with the giraffe heads sticking out, and I'm sure the kids enjoy that. Um, that's not very biblical, but I, I understand how that happens. You know, we're talking to kids, so we, we dumb it down, right? No, we should not dumb it down. We, it should still be accurate. So, But you, you have that in mind, the, the little boat with the giraffe head sticking out. And then, yeah, it rains for 40 days and 40 nights, and that's supposed to flood the entire planet? Really? 
there's no way. There's not enough water on this planet to cover the entire Earth. Do you even know how tall Mount Everest is? Uh, in case you don't, it's five and a half miles high. You tell me how you can flood the entire planet with mountains that high. That's impossible. And then taking two of every animal on that little boat, do you know how many millions of species of animals there are on the planet? Oh, yeah, and then you have these eight people coming off that little boat, and they're supposed to repopulate the entire planet. We recently reached eight billion people on Earth. You tell me how that's even possible to go from eight people a few thousand years ago to eight billion. These are all reasons why this whole flood story is just crazy. It's absurd. It, why should I listen to anything else the Bible has to say when you got that front and center? You know, interesting thoughts, aren't they? Interesting challenges. Again, that's based on a lot of myths about the Bible, and we'll be addressing these things as we go through the rest of this podcast, and we'll get to some of the scientific evidences next time. Um, if you listen to my podcast, which was entitled The Big Picture, The New Testament in a Nutshell, that was the previous podcast, you may recall me mentioning that there was a tie-in from that podcast to the current series we're doing. And here's a quick review. Everything in the Old Testament is a buildup to the arrival of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. The New Testament details the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus, his life, his miracles, death, resurrection. And then it further talks about his future return to earth, and we call that the second coming. So the next major event on the horizon, biblically speaking, would be the return of Christ. It's interesting to note that the Bible made a prediction, it prophesied that in the the last days, the end times, which most people today believe we're living in, I think there's a lot of reason for that, but the Bible predicted that in those last days, skeptics are going to doubt the return of Christ, the second coming that the New Testament predicts is going to happen, and that's the next major event on the horizon. But the skeptics are going to doubt that. And the Bible says that the skeptics are ignoring two very significant things that are causing them to doubt then the return of Christ. Now, you might guess that these two things that are causing the skeptics to doubt the return of Christ, they would be spiritual things, because the return of Christ is certainly a spiritual thing. However, you would be wrong in your guess. If you take a look at the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, this is in the New Testament, this is written by Peter almost 2,000 years ago. This is a long time ago. Peter is making a prediction, a prophecy about our days. He's predicting what's going to be going on 2,000 years later. And he tells us that the two things that are causing the skeptic to doubt the return of Christ are these two things. Number one, they're rejecting the Genesis creation account. Number two, they are rejecting the Genesis flood. Now, I've always been fascinated by that because I spent a lot of time talking about and defending the Genesis creation account, which we will definitely be getting into in future podcasts. I'm not trying to put it off. I'm really excited about it. It's hard for me to wait myself, but we will be delving into that in great depth because that's one of my fortes. But they're rejecting that Genesis creation account and the Genesis flood. So what's the connection? What in the world does that have to do with people today doubting the return of Christ? Here's the connection. It makes so much sense. 
By rejecting the Genesis creation account, they're rejecting God as the ultimate authority. He, he created everything. He owns it. He gets to set the rules. Well, they do not like that. They don't want God setting rules. They want to do whatever they want to do. And by rejecting the Genesis flood, what was that? Well, that was God's judgment on sin. Well, they reject that. They reject his judgment. Why? Because they're good people. They're not sinners. you got to be kidding me. They're not sinners. They're good people. So they reject God's judgment. Well, what is the return of Christ, the second coming? It's another judgment by God. God says the second one's not going to be this water thing that you had the first time, the Genesis flood. It's going to be by fire. So let's briefly take a look at this actual passage in Scripture, 2 Peter Chapter 3, we're going to take a look at verses 3 through 7. And it says this, Knowing first of all, Peter's saying this, this is important that you get this, that scoffers will come in the last days. These are the skeptics. The scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now, I don't want to do too much preaching here, but Peter is saying the skeptics who are going to be doubting the return of Christ they are following their own sinful desires. That's what's getting them to go that particular direction. It's, it's their own desire. It's what they want to do. They don't want God telling them what to do. They're going to make up their own minds. They're going to decide their own destiny. And these skeptics, they're going to say, where is the promise of his coming, meaning the return of Christ? And they say, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, these the forefathers that people lived a long time ago, ever since they, they died, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, when they're saying beginning of creation, they're not saying since that Genesis creation account where God created everything. What they're saying is everything continues on the way it always has from the beginning of the universe. No major disruptions. Everything smooth sailing. It's just the way it always has been from the beginning of creation up till now. Then Peter says, starting in verse 5, he said, These skeptics, they are deliberately overlooking this fact. King James actually says that they are willingly ignorant. They are choosing to ignore two things. And then Peter says, number one, they're ignoring the fact that the heavens existed long ago, that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. That is a reference to the Genesis creation account. I'll get into that in future podcasts in more detail. But they're rejecting the Genesis creation account. And then in verse 6, Peter mentions the second thing that's causing them to doubt the return of Christ. He says that these waters that God originally used to create the earth, they were used on the world that then existed to flood the earth as a deluge with water. And that world, the people that existed and the animals, they perished. And then it goes on in the last verse 7, by the same word of the heavens that, that God spoke things into existence, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So the world's being preserved now, but eventually God's going to judge it again by, by fire the second time, not by water. Okay, that's the passage in 2 Peter chapter 3. Those are verses 3 through 7. So Peter says that the skeptics who are doubting the return of Christ are rejecting the creation account and the flood, and they are saying that everything continues on the way it always has. No, probably even miraculous creation account, and certainly no miraculous judgment of God um, because of sin with, with a worldwide flood. Everything goes on the way it always has. This is uniform 
processes, something that today we call uniformitarianism. I'll get to that in a second. Peter predicted this about 2,000 years ago. Well, for most of history, most of humanity believed in the supernatural and the creation account in general, as, as the Bible said. They really had no word, or reason to doubt that. Certainly atheists and other skeptics did, but everyone else, it made sense that, yeah, things are created, it can't happen by themselves. But today, that's not where most people are. Something changed. So what happened? We're going to take a very brief look at history here. I used to hate history, and now there's more of it than ever. Uh, but now I find it fascinating because it, as I study the Bible and Christianity and defending the Christian worldview, I realize how significant history is, so I wanted to know more about it. So we're going to look at three key figures in history that relate to this discussion of the flood and the rejection of the flood and the doubting and the return of Christ. We're going to look at Charles Darwin, which you probably know a fair amount about already, and two other guys that preceded him, James Hutton and Charles Lyell. We're going to start out looking at Charles Darwin briefly. Now, many people, especially many Christians, say, oh, Charles Darwin, he ruined everything. He invented the idea of evolution and things have never been the same since. Uh, that's not true. Charles Darwin did not invent the idea of evolution. That concept had been around for a long time. He just popularized it and he made it sound more credible. But he didn't do that in a vacuum. He did not wake up one day, originally planning to play tennis, but then he saw it was raining out, so he said, oh, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I know, I'll write The Origin of Species. So he writes The Origin of Species. That's not what happened. There were things going on to him prior to him writing that book, Origin of Species, in 1859, that led him to writing that book. So very quickly, let's take a look at two very significant characters that uh, were precursor for Darwin. We'll start out looking at James Hutton. He appeared on the scene first out of these three guys. He's considered to be the father of modern geology. So sharp guy, so he was the one who kind of got geology going. This is his quote. He said, quote, The past history of our globe must be explained by what can be seen to be happening now. No powers are to be employed that are not natural to the globe. No action to be admitted except those of which we know the principle, unquote. What's he saying? He's saying when we look at the physical earth, we can only refer to natural processes that we are currently observing today. You cannot resort to supernatural processes or anything that we're not currently observing. This is something known as uniformitarianism. I mentioned that before in 2 Peter when it says all things are continuing the way they always have from the beginning of the universe, uniform processes. So uniformitarianism, uniform, meaning the same, going on and on. Etarianism, that doesn't mean anything. So, But the whole thing together, uniformitarianism, just means these uniform processes continuing on for a long period of time. So James Hutton was saying, you can't really consider supernatural processes, whether it was creation or a global flood, you can only look at the processes you see today, the wind and rain and sand blown around, things like that. Use those physical actions to explain everything we're seeing on the planet, including Grand Canyon, including Mount Everest and all these other features. Well, if that's true... 
it would take a long, 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 long time to form all those things by slow natural processes. And that was his point. The earth isn't relatively young in the supernatural creation and a judgment through a flood. It's just natural processes that have been going on for millions and millions of years. So in his mind and then in the mind of others at that time, the earth became very, very old. This was not a scientific discovery. This was a philosophical decision to rule out supernatural or catastrophic processes. And that became the basis for modern geology. Now, it's not working well for them, so they're really changing quite a bit, and they're realizing that almost everything they're looking at requires a catastrophe. Uh, they just don't want to tie them together into a global flood. So, yeah, that's catastrophic. Yep, that's catastrophic. Yep, that's catastrophic. But it's just multiple catastrophic you know, events happening over millions and millions and millions of years and all that. That doesn't work well either. We'll get to that uh, when we talk about the scientific evidences. But that was the formation of modern geology, just slow natural processes. And then the next guy who came on the scene, Charles Lyell, he was born the same year James Hutton, his predecessor, died, 1797. This is prior to Charles Darwin coming on the scene. So the year James Hutton, the father of modern geology, the year he died, Charles Lyell was born. Now, he was a lawyer, but he became a, um, a geologist, and he wrote a three-volume series entitled Principles of Geology. And his stated goal in writing Principles of Geology was to, quote, free the science from Moses, unquote. What does that mean? Who is Moses? Well, Moses happens to be the author of the first five books of the Bible, including Genesis, which talks about the Genesis creation account and the Genesis flood. Lyell's goal was to get away from Scripture, get away from that miraculous creation account, and certainly get away from the catastrophic worldwide flood mentioned in Genesis 6-8. through That was his goal. Well, Darwin took the first volume of these three books with him on his famous voyage of the Beagle when he goes to the Galapagos Islands and then he starts writing The Origin of Species. And Darwin thought, if these two guys prior to me could figure out how to explain the physical features of the earth based on natural processes through these newly discovered millions and millions and millions of years, maybe he, Darwin, could explain the origin and variety of living things through natural processes over millions and millions and millions of years apart from God's supernatural creation. So he writes The Origin of Species. Uh, Darwin is originally trained as a theologian, but he became bitter towards God and wanted to explain things apart from God, especially apart from Scripture. So those are things that were going on before Darwin writes The Origin of Species. Uh, people were stepping in saying, no, we got to get away from Scripture, away from God, away from the supernatural, and just explain things by natural processes apart from God. Well, it's interesting, Jesus, you probably heard of him, <laughs> in John chapter 5, verses 46 through 47, said, quote, For if you believed Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Unquote. So Jesus is saying, you know what, if you would have believed the Moses stuff, the creation account and the flood, you would believe in me because he wrote in me. But if you're not going to believe his writings, I'm not sure why you would believe anything that I have to say. Pretty powerful. Well, 
Here's another interesting quote from a guy named Stephen Jay Gould. He was one of the world's leading evolutionists. Very intelligent scientist, died a number of years ago, but he was a professor of geology at Harvard. He was an agnostic. So he wouldn't go quite so far to say he absolutely knows there's no God. He's just saying he doesn't believe in God because he doesn't think there's enough evidence. So functionally, he lived as an atheist. So here's a quote from him, and I would call him in a sense a hostile witness, meaning here's a quote that I believe is supportive of the biblical narrative, even though he himself did not believe the Bible. But in this passage, he's being pretty honest about what he's observing. So this is a quote from Stephen Jay Gould, one of the world's leading evolutionists and an agnostic. He said, and he's talking about Lyell, and he's talking about uniformitarianism, and he's talking about the catastrophists. So when you hear me say catastrophists, that talks about catastrophes. Those are the people who believed in the worldwide flood. They believed in the biblical account. So when you hear those words, realize catastrophism means the biblical account of a flood, happening rapidly rather than slow natural processes. So Gould says this, quote, Lyell re- relied upon two bits of cunning to establish his uniformitarianism views as the only true geology. First, he set up a straw man to demolish. In fact, the catastrophists were much more empirically minded than Lyell. The geologic record does seem to require catastrophes, Rocks are fractured and contorted. Whole faunas are wiped out. To circumvent this literal appearance, Lyell imposed his imagination upon the evidence. The geologic record, he argued, is extremely imperfect, and we must interpolate into it what we can reasonably infer but cannot see. The catastrophists were the hard-nosed empiricists of their day not the blinded theological apologist, unquote. All right, what did Gould just say? He said, the catastrophists, the people who believed in a biblical flood, they were doing better science. They were looking at what they actually saw versus Charles Lyell. He kind of ignored what he saw and he read into it what he believed might have happened but couldn't see. (laughs) That's not good science. So Gould is saying the biblical creationists were being the more hard-nosed empiricists of their day, looking at what they actually saw in the rock record rather than reading into it. And then he had an, Gould had another quote here. He said, quote, Catastrophists were as committed to science as any gradualist. In fact, they adopted the more objective view that one should believe what one sees and not interpolate missing bits of gradual record into a literal tale of rapid change, unquote. So Gould again was saying the biblical you know, catastrophists were more empirically minded. They looked at what they saw and they did not interpolate into it what they wanted it to be. They looked at what they actually saw. There's a record here of rapid change, and that's from one of the leading evolutionists. So this rejection certainly isn't just for skeptics, because guess what? I told you that Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 predicted 2,000 years ago that people would reject the creation account and the flood. Well, guess what? Every single secular scientist today, they reject the Genesis creation account and they reject the Genesis flood. But even many religious people, even Christians, reject the Genesis creation account and the Genesis flood. 
oh, they believe that God's the creator and he obviously ultimately created everything, but not the way Genesis says, because we, we know better now. We're not ignorant goat herders who had very little knowledge of the real world. We really know because we're smart now. And the secular scientists especially tell us all about the Big Bang and evolution and they're sharp people. So we need to take into account what they're telling us to then go back into God's word to figure out what God actually meant, to kind of straighten them out on all this because that's you can't take it for what it says. We know better. So even many Christians today are rejecting the creation account and they reject the flood too. Oh, well, that never happened. Why? Because the secular geologists, they don't believe in it. They're, they tell us there's no evidence for it. So you can't take it seriously. And so even many Christians today are watering down their view of the authority of God's word. And here's just one example. I'm giving you an example as an example. I'm not trying to pick on this person. But when people make statements, it's fair game to comment on what they said. I'm not trying to refer to his character at this point. I'm just commenting and analyzing what he claimed. This comes from someone, some of you will know him, many of you won't. His name is William Lane Craig. He's a Christian apologist. He defends the Christian worldview. Many people see him as being the leading philosophical Christian apologist. He's not a scientist, but he's really sharp. I have heard him debate many atheists, and he he does an incredible job. Um, but here's a place where I think he's kind of gone off the reservation, where he gets away from the authority of Scripture in reference to the flood. So here's his quote. He said, quote, Take, for example, the attempt to explain away earth sedimentation on the basis of so-called flood geology, Noah's flood. The idea that there was ever a worldwide flood that destroyed all terrestrial life on earth and laid down earth sediments is a fantasy, unquote. Wow, he looks at the Genesis flood as a fantasy. If you really think that that literally happened over the whole globe, why? Why does he believe that? Because he's listening largely to the secular geologists. And yeah, there are some Christian geologists too who don't believe in a global flood. But he's just taking their authority and then going to Scripture and saying, I, I don't have to worry about what the words say here. We can reinterpret it to force it to, to meet whatever I'm hearing from other people, what makes sense to me. How, how does this happen? I, I call it compromise, and compromise isn't, isn't always bad. But I think in many cases, biblically speaking, it is terrible when you are forcing your beliefs into the text that you're reading. Well, here's just, I'll have to do another podcast on this someday, but here's just one reason why I think this happens. And it comes from uh, the New Testament, the book of John, chapter 12, verses 42 through 43. And it says this, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. This is talking about believing in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. All right, what's the same? So there were people hearing about Jesus and many believed in him, but they didn't want to publicly confess it. Why? Because the Pharisees or the leaders of the time, and boy, if they knew that you were believing in Jesus as the Messiah, they'd kick you out of the synagogue. And that's a place of prestige. You don't want to lose that. So they were more worried about what other people would think than what God would think. And that, I believe, is what happens largely today, that many of these leading Christians, they're rubbing shoulders with 
other very impressive academics who might be atheists or humanists or whatever, and they kind of get along fine, and they're so impressed with each other how smart they each are. No, they disagree with each other's philosophies, but it's kind of cool. We're the leading you know, experts, and we get to hang out and shoot the breeze and have these talks, and isn't it cool how we can get along because we're so smart? Um, but they're not necessarily worried about the details sometimes of what Scripture says, because if they really went with what Scripture said, they just lost their seat. The other academics saying, this person's just foolish. They actually believe what the Bible says. We don't respect them anymore. So if you go with what Scripture actually says, you're probably going to lose that position. And they're more worried about what other people think and the prestige than what Scripture actually says from God. So what do they do? Well, then they say, well, okay, we can't just say there was like no flood whatsoever because the Bible talks about it quite a bit and there's a lot of detail. So most of them say, well, it was just a local flood, just you know, where Noah was living. He, it looked like it was global to him, but it was just local in his area. I'm going to give you seven quick reasons why there's no way it was a local flood. It had to be global. Number one, why spend so much time building an ark? If it's just a local flood, we know that Noah spent probably up to maybe 75 years. Some people say 120. 120 is more of a reference as to advance notice Noah had before the flood was coming, but he didn't immediately start building an ark. So the amount of time was up to maybe 75 years, but still, if it's a local flood, why wouldn't Noah say, hey, here's a business card of a really good realtor. I use them all the time. Move. I'm going to flood this area. You have plenty of time, lots of years. Just, just move. If it was a local flood, he could have done that. If it was a global flood, moving would not help. It was a global flood. That's why he spent so much time building an ark. Number two, why such a massive ark? Local flood, you could have built a smaller boat, just put local animals on, you'd be fine. But the actual ark had probably just over 2 million cubic feet of storage space. You need a massive ark to put not two of each species on on the ark, two of each kind. I'll get into that in more detail in some other podcast, but just quick example. Noah did not need to take Dobermans and Huskies and Terriers and Golden Retrievers, etc. and all that. He would have needed a pair of wolves. Whoa, what's that all about? Today, all scientists believe that all the breeds of dogs we have today came from wolves genetically. There's so much evidence for that. You can breed wolves, and if you keep doing that and you do selection, you can breed this nice variety, and you can produce all the modern dogs we have today. That's not evolution. It's actually going downhill genetically. I'll get into that in the future. But Noah would have taken two of each kind to then produce the great variety of species we have today. A third reason why it couldn't have been a local flood. Why put birds on the ark? Local flood, birds could have just flown away. Plus, there's birds living in other areas. You don't need them on the ark. But if it was a global flood, you'd need them on the ark because there would be a whole year, nowhere for them to land. Number four, all the high hills covered under the whole heaven. That's what Genesis 7.19 says. All the high hills under the whole heaven. It's a double imperative in, in the Hebrew there. This is extensive. This is global in nature. You cannot cover all the high hills under the whole heaven in a local area. Water seeks its own level. That was a global flood. Number five, did God break his promise? Why do I say that? Uh, Genesis 9 talks about the rainbow. And originally, I know it's been kind of hijacked today. I'm not going down that rabbit trail right now. Um, But the rainbow was God's symbol that he would not send a flood again. 
I don't believe he magically created a rainbow. I think there could have been rainbows prior to the flood. That's more details. You know, just that's physics. But after the flood, God says, see the rainbow? That now is going to serve as a symbol that I'm not doing this again. If it was a local flood in Noah's time, God lied because there's been thousands of floods where hundreds of thousands of people have lost their lives. So God would have lied. Now, if it was a global flood during Noah's time, then God kept his promise. We have not had a global flood, and today it's physically impossible. We'll get into that maybe when you talk about some of the scientific evidence. Number six, local floods don't last an entire year. Biblical flood was 370 days. Local floods don't last that long. And lastly, number seven, the Bible says it took 74 days for the waters to recede from the flood. Genesis 8, verses 4 and 5. Um, it doesn't take 74 days for waters to recede from a local flood. All of this screams. And the entire passage, Genesis 6 through 8, you read it, it's global, global, global flood. And today... We have so many cultural references to a global flood. I think I'm going to cut myself off here and cover this very briefly when we jump into scientific evidence for the global flood, which will be the next podcast. I don't want to rush myself and I don't want this to be too long. So I'll cover that very briefly at the beginning of the next episode. But we, we're just getting warmed up here. I'm teeing it up for exploring all the scientific evidence for a global flood as described in the Bible. You you do not want to miss the next episode, which is what we'll cover. Uh, I think it's going to be very eye-opening. Most likely, it's going to fly in the face of everything you've been taught about the geologic history of our planet. If the Genesis flood actually happened, which is what the Bible claims, well, then it truly changes everything. And that's where we are headed next. Really quick, if you're listening to this and would love to go on a tour of the Grand Canyon, which is one of the best spots on the planet to see evidence for a global flood, if you want a personal guide, myself, get a hold of us as soon as possible. If you're listening to this right when it's released in uh, June of 2023, we've got five tours planned this summer. It's too late for the June one. It might be too late for the July one, but we've got some spots left, a few spots left in August, and a number of spots left in October. So contact us right away. It's an absolutely amazing tour, family-friendly. You can learn a lot more details on our website, thestartingpointproject.com. Thestartingpointproject.com. Look up events, Grand Canyon tours. Love to have you join us. If you're listening after that point in time, we're doing tours every year, so still get a hold of us to see which ones we have coming up. It's an awesome, awesome trip. So make sure you tune in, tell a friend, invite him to listen to the next episode, and please, please subscribe. That helps us greatly. And if you can leave a five-star review, even better. Uh, you will not want to miss the rest of this series. We will see you next time. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Starting Point Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, tell a friend, and please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That's the number one way to help us reach more and more people with these important and inspiring messages. To learn more about myself, Jay Siegert, and The Starting Point Project, please visit us at thestartingpointproject.com. We'll catch you next time.